Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. Not always trying to make the perfect choice for your career, but just getting outside your own box and doing something different, I think is just, it's amazing. I think that everyone should do it. Just don't be scared to like screw it up. You can't ever screw it up. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. My guest today is Melissa Tidwell, a 2003 graduate of NYU Law and General Counsel of Reddit here in San Francisco. I am so pleased to welcome Missy to the conversation. Thank you for having me. Well, actually, thank you for having me since we're here (laughs) at Reddit. So because this podcast is oriented around women, which is what we always say, I like to start with this first question. What was your experience as a law student? Well, it was so long ago of whopping, you know. No, I mean, I loved NYU. I had a great time. I think the things that were most impactful to me was just sort of the breadth of things that you could do and learn about. So ironically, though I'm a general counsel at a startup, I spent a lot of classes with constitutional law or criminal law. I did Brian Stevenson's death penalty clinic. I did a juvenile rights, you know, one of the, I can't even remember now, I would never, I don't practice any of this, but um, one of the clinics where you um, do more active work. So that aspect of it, I loved because for me, having spent a lot of time in government prior to law school, I just learned such a huge amount. Ironically, I didn't end up in any of those fields. But it comes back in different ways based on especially being in tech companies and working on policy issues and things of that nature. So in that sense, I loved it. You know, we had amazing events for us when we were there. We had um, what's it called? Kramer was my CivPro professor who went on to be the dean of Stanford Law School. And Kramer Pildes, who I believe is still at NYU, that was right for Bush v. Gore. So we had a ton of really interesting events and talks around Bush v. Gore and sort of the impact and talking about those constitutional issues. So it just made it really fun and nerdy. And nerdy and wonky. And even though you might not be doing what Brian is doing, I mean, what an incredibly influential thinker and guy, relevant on all kinds of ways, and certainly influential about the law. You happen to be in a pretty influential uh, world right now. What made you want to go to law school in the first place? You know, I think growing up for me, my parents had all of, had a lot of friends who were lawyers by trade and they could have been business people. They were politicians. They were running their own law practice. So for me, I think I always had the mindset that being a lawyer was a good catch-all. in the sense that clearly it taught you a lot of different skills. And I think I was really impressioned, I think in particular by my parents' friends who were lawyers and politicians, of sort of how they described law school and the way that it taught them to think. So from a very young age, I always was interested in going to law school. I decided to take some time off between undergrad and law school to explore kind of what it did actually mean because I spent at Georgetown, I spent a lot of time, I worked on the Hill, I worked for, um, in the White House. I did a bunch of political things, but I wanted to understand the corporate side of it. So 
that's when prior to law school I ended up working at Cravath as a legal assistant and ironically that sort of solidified it for me that I definitely wanted to go to law school because I actually really did enjoy being in a corporate environment working on I was a litigation so it was a little bit different um, again from what I do now but I really focused a lot on kind of what it actually mean to be a litigator work for big clients and things of that nature, which I hadn't previously had exposure to. So you had all these ideas about what it meant to go to law school. I got all my I got all my notions of law school from TV, you know. It's totally true. LA Law. Yeah, LA Law was great though. <laughs> Blair Underwood is still around. <laughs> so did you have expectations going in about law school? What would it be like? And then what was the gap like? You know, I don't really think I, I think I had realistic expectations. I sort of knew going into it that I didn't want to be a clerk on the Supreme Court. I knew that I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with a law degree, but I did want to be in a corporate setting. So I think going into it, because I knew a ton of lawyers, I knew about people trying to get on law review and just sort of that whole aspect of it, which for me was never compelling because I was just really genuinely there to learn regardless of where that took me. So I think for me, I probably didn't have a huge expectation. I think the Socratic method, I don't know if it still exists now. (laughs) It does, it does. Yeah, I think that was a shock for me because I've never been in that position. And I think, for instance, Kramer in Civ Pro, you know, he was the one, and I stupidly sat on the first seat in one of the rows, but he would choose a person on the end of the row and then just go in so you never knew where he was going to start. That was definitely a very weird position to be in because though I am a talker, Civ Pro is a very difficult subject and having Larry Kramer, who is one of the, like an amazingly gifted and talented individual, like call on you as the first person is really intimidating. As a 1L. Yeah, as a 1L, yeah. I did get an A minus though, so it was exciting. That is very exciting. (laughs) I talk to students sometimes about the physical reaction that we have to being called on. Yeah during the Socratic method, that you feel it physically yeah. in your body. I mean, the whole class literally turns to you. So, you know, it's, it's in, I think it's intense. That's probably the biggest shock. But we didn't have it in every class, which was probably good for our mental health. Right. But there's nothing quite like it to no. prepare you for real life. No, absolutely. I think even more so now, I appreciate, especially in Kramer's class, because again, it wasn't, it was just where I chose to sat. And then he said, oh, and here's how I do it. Like first person in the row gets called on and I just move in. And... I think even more so now, the reality of being in tech is that's very much tech. Like, you don't really have the luxury of being able to research things or to take time to understand things. Stuff happens on the fly all of the time, and you are forced to react to it super quickly. I asked somebody recently if there was a better, if there was anything better that we could do as an institution to prepare students. And she told me after we were finished recording, she said, the only thing I can tell you is that I wish that you could somehow prepare students better for the buzzsaw that is the real world. Yeah. And it seems like the Socratic method, that heart-pounding moment of being called on, cold-called, really, yeah. is the only thing that is the buzzsaw. I think it's huge. I mean, for me, it's definitely probably one of the better things. I think especially because the good part of that is that in the end of the day, it's actually a safe space, though I'm sure some professors took it to a different level, that like to actually get it wrong. So like, and I think that's part of the, like of, again, particularly in tech, that like you have to be prepared to get it wrong. 
and I don't think a lot of people actually are. Like they're so focused on perfection and especially the way that law firms teach you. I don't think people, especially moving from being an outside counsel to an in-house counselor, are really prepared to just screw it up and mess it up. And you learn from those, and that happens on me. I make mistakes every day. So I think in that sense, Socratic method is really is really a good thing. The other thing that I think would have been really helpful from my perspective is because I knew I didn't really want to be a litigator, I think the first year lawyering class was, I love the concept of it, of having people in small groups and thinking practically, but I was never interested in litigation. So, and I felt like it was so focused on that. I think we had a a Native American case, like a child custody case on a reserva- in an Indian reservation, we had to argue. So again, super interesting, but for me, not particularly practical in terms of where my career ended up going. Right. Yeah. Some of those things, you take little shreds of it with you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even the more, I mean, even again, going back to, I think it's all the practical education stuff that I think is super useful. Because the other thing is, Randy Hertz was the juvenile rights clinic. I think it's the class that I took. And again, I'm not, I don't deal with juvenile rights, <laughs> but we had cross-examinations. Like you had to depose, you know, you depose people on the stand, you had to object. And if someone objected and, you know, you had to reroute your questions and figure out how to get to the answer you wanted, that kind of thinking on, like on your feet and how to get what you need, hugely important. Very useful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You started your legal career at Deva Voice in Plimpton back in New York before you moved to San Francisco. What made you decide, first of all, to move to an in-house position? I had spent at Deva Voice, I started off in litigation and did some interesting constitutional like legal voting rights cases, which was really fun. I switched to the corporate side, honestly, by like a partner who sat on my floor who was basically like, you'd be a great corporate lawyer. You should totally do that. Litigation's boring. So I kind of gave up my my love of the Constitution for for corporate, and I did M and A deals. Missy, well, come on, yeah. you didn't really give up your love of the Constitution. I didn't, I didn't give it up, but no, it's <laughs> yeah. true. but it's you know I had to let it go as a job. So I think I did M and A and at Debevoise, and it was mostly global M and A deals. So we actually focused a lot on IP because that was a lot of the M and A transactions and things that were happening. So I had the option basically to go work for one of our clients in Brazil for one of their internet companies. And I thought that would be awesome and amazing, but I'd actually rather just work for the internet company. Um, So I just decided to move to California um, where I could get more exposure to the internet. Because then in, in New York, back in the day, there were very few startups. There was very little of kind of like that, especially at a firm, getting exposure to what it meant to be a lawyer for a tech company on a day-to-day basis. So I ended up moving to Morrison and Forrester in San Francisco. I actually ended up working there for, I think, seven months before I moved to uh, Google. I love, I'm getting a huge kick out of how you call back in the day, you know, somewhere in the, you know, early, uh, mid-2000s. We get a lot of questions from our students about sort of coastal cultures Mm -hmm. and city cultures. A lot of our students go, I mean, obviously, stay in New York. Yeah. There's a different culture in D.C. There's a different culture in L.A. New York to San Francisco. Talk a little bit about that. Oh, gosh. People still call me a New York lawyer, which is funny at this stage because I've been here now for 10 years practicing. Because you talk really fast. (laughs) I curse a lot. I speak fast. And I'm very straightforward. (laughs) 
I think those years of M&A deal making and having bankers on the other side of a table arguing over deal points was fucking awesome, for lack of a better term. Um, <laughs> so I think the, the huge difference is, you know, New Yorkers are very upfront, honest, get to the point, get it done. California, and in particular, I would say tech culture can be very, it's very sweet. It's very nice. No one curses like I do. Bless your heart. Um, you know, it's just a total, I don't know, it's a very different, I think the skills of like get shit done applies to tech, but it's a much nicer, more flexible environment, right? Like it's very common to, you know, we have spare the air day where at Google that meant people, execs included, you would organize bike rides from San Francisco to Mountain View. It's 45 miles. Wow. And they'd be like, anybody can join. I'm like, I, I can barely ride five miles. Like, just come do it with us. It might take you like two hours, but that'll be great. Just do it. Join the group. <laughs> so in that sense, it's very, New Yorkers would not do that kind of stuff. They may be like, get on the train, let's meet at a bar, and we'll get something resolved. This, California, it's outdoorsy, it's like nice. It's, you know, I think that's all, that's all I can come up with. Somebody said to me that in New York they say, what do you do? And in California they say, what did you do last weekend? Yeah. I think schools much more so matter in New York. And in New York, I always, I'm very defensive when people say that about New Yorkers. Because I always say in New York it's about figuring out, like, how do you know? Like, what's the connection? Like, who do you know in common? What common experiences do you have? Because if you went to Georgetown, then... You were in D.C. You may have been interested in politics. You may have taken that class with this person. You may know my friend who works at that bank. So I think it was much less about, like, the pomp and circumstance of where did you go, but more or less the connections and how do you know each other and how are you familial. But absolutely here, I mean, you have CEOs who didn't graduate from college. You have, you know, leads who didn't graduate from college. You have a wide variety of, of I think, perspectives especially from an educational standpoint, I think that exist in California that don't necessarily exist as much in New York. That sort of begs the question when you think about it from when you talk about the good old boys club. Yeah. Right? I mean, it seems like that there would be more room at the table for women. Is that the case? I would say overall, I think tech is much more inclusive across the board. I think it's much more of a bad rap than a lot of industries. I think particularly including law firms in New York or banks in New York. I think tech, if you were to compare tech to those industries, which I worked with in New York, it's much broader because it's not just men and women. It is global. There's much more of a global perspective here. There's much more of a language differential here. There's much more um, of a race differential here that you see much more. Granted, that's not to say that tech doesn't have work to do in the space of diversity. But I do think across the board that they, um, they, I think they get a little bit of a bad rap for you know what they are but yes theoretically like I think because there is very much an openness to who are you and can you get things done there is has that has created spaces that hasn't otherwise existed I think in other industries anytime that there's new space a frontier there's kind of a game that women can potentially break into I'd like to think yeah but then again you know that means also anytime there's a door, it's a door that can also be closed. Totally, yeah. But I think it's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, and I think, I think tech is also very cognizant of it. And 
there's a lot of stuff going on for people to try and change and distort that dynamic, right? I think tech is very aware of issues that they face, particularly in engineering where you, you really do find less women in tech. I think there is some aspect of that, which is, you know, with Melinda Gates, who's talked about the difference of when she went to school of women in engineering versus what's happening today. And there's a lot of people, even outside of outside of the engineering function, where I think you do have good successes in tech, right? If you look at, I mean, just even the people that I use as my sort of mentors and colleagues, you know, Vidya, who's also NYU at Twitter, or Belinda Johnson, who is the chief legal officer and in charge of legal and a couple of other business functions at Airbnb. Katie Bieber is somebody who worked at Airbnb, is now the GC of Thumbtack. There's definitely, there's a women's GC network of people across the board, right? Where these type of like networking and things exist, which again, women and leadership roles is in companies is always, you know, there are for sure less than there could be. But I think that there is much more in tech than you anticipate. You are you're not unique. I mean, you're making sure that women get a seat at the table. There's some there. You're wicked smart. Everybody sees you as wicked smart. You've talked about the fact that you're fast talking New Yorker in San Francisco, uh, fast talking cussing New Yorker. But you've got also got something special about you. I think I don't know if you're able to even speak to that. Your own special sauce. Gosh, I don't know what that is. Um. <laughs> I know. I don't know that we. I don't know that we're able to speak to our own special sauce, our own superpower. I wish I had a superpower. It would be sleep. It would be sleep, right? There's more and more research that says that that is, that's everybody's superpower. Yeah, it would be really great. The capacity to nap. Yeah, I would just love to be one of those people that, like, if you can just lie down and close your eyes, <laughs> and you go you go to sleep. Whereas I close my eyes. And I think, oh, shit, I forgot to email this person. I need to do these seven things. I forgot to, you know, the laundry is sitting in the washer. I should probably put it in the dryer <laughs> before I go to sleep. So I would like to be able to be one of those people that turns off. Missy, I will tell you that I am, in fact, a napper. So I can nap for 17 minutes and wake up. So maybe I should tell you that. Yeah. You can be envious of my nap. But so... I'll have to think about how to get at your special sauce. What would your colleagues say is your special sauce? Um, I don't know. I think my colleagues would probably say that, look, they can always count on me to keep it real and to sort of say what needs to be said. I don't think anyone would be, if I don't speak up and have an opinion, I think they would be shocked at that, right? So I think especially in a company aspect, they expect me to have an opinion. I think at my birthday, David Drummond was there, who is, um, you know, lucky enough, I sat next to him. He's one of the four or four or five executives at Alphabet um, and was the general counsel and chief legal officer of Google for a long time. I used to sit outside of his office, which is how I got to know him. And he made a comment when he did a toast at my 40th birthday about, like, no one could ever tell Melissa what to do. <laughs> you know, but he's like, she was the only person as a young associate, like a young counsel who would walk into his office and I would just ask him questions. I would say, so on China, so if we're, this is going to happen, but why not do this? Like how, like, why are you doing this this way? So I would just, I mean, I never looked at it as weird. I just looked at it as he has a seat at the table. He's making like a global, like geopolitical decision with four people. (laughs) Why don't I just walk across the room and ask him, what does he think? You know, when we got in Italy, we had a huge lawsuit at Google about taking a video down on YouTube. And for a long time, there were a couple of execs that were actually, you know, 
theoretically banned from Italy from being in Italy in the country and that sort of thing. So again, I sit down with him and I explained why do we push back on this case? Like why, you know, in the context of like the Italian constitution, what does that mean? You know, how much do these things even cost, right? To even have these arguments and debates. Because in my head, I wanted to know, like these things don't come for free. Like it's easy to have a stance when it doesn't cost you anything. Um, but to have a stance when you actually have to put money behind it, I wanted to understand some of that. So I've just always asked the hard questions. So the curiosity business. Yeah the being brave about your curiosity and feeling like you have a right to your curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. I just didn't, I've never thought about it. And a lot of people are intimidated by David as an example, because Mm -hmm. he is a very successful executive. He's not himself super chatty and social, but I would literally just walk up to his office and knock and walk in. I have felt at the law school, for instance, surrounded by the most brilliant legal professors. And very often I will read something and I'll say, dude, I do not understand this. Could you explain this to me? And they kind of have this moment of like, huh? And then they tell me. Yeah. And I learned something. Yeah. No, and that was for me like the fun of taking different classes because I actually, half the classes I took, I think were about taking the professor versus what the topic of the class is because it's just fun to have a conversation with really smart people. So that might actually be your superpower is to that there's no intimidation yeah about your own curiosity yeah reddit is considered sort of the front page of the internet they that's what they say it seems uh deeply political and also profoundly almost dangerously personal sometimes hard to keep up with i'm i find myself resorting really kind of in this sheepish way to urban dictionary (laughs) i mean (laughs) I have to admit that I was, I was like, who knew what doxing was? It's totally true. And do you spell it with two X's or one? Right? I mean, really, come on. So how do you keep up? I mean, I, I have to tell you, that has nothing to do with your gender that I'm asking that yeah. question. No, I don't keep up with what's on Reddit, right? I mean, ultimately, we have probably now upwards of 270 million monthly active users, which is a huge amount. And these are people who are creating content, voting on content, just talking about everything under the sun from a photo, a cute photo of a dog in awe, the subreddit, <laughs> to talking about serious issues um, and politics on the Donald or world news or politics or news or the myriad of other sort of subreddits related to that. Or talking, taking photos and take, like earth porn is another one of the ones I like, which is photos of beautiful images of the world. So I think, you know, I definitely do not stay on top of what's happening on the site because so much is actually happening. But I think it's a good reflection of of each of us individually, right? Like it's not, you're not just, you know, working at the law school or invest, like there's a, everyone has different aspects to their personality. And so it can be deeply personal with people who are sharing incredibly intense stories. There was a post in an LGBT subreddit of a guy in Syria saying, of all the things going around in the world, I'm having a difficult time because I'm actually gay. And talked about taking his life because he was not comfortable, not just with the war going on, but with the fact that in his country, it's not, he didn't feel okay to be himself. And the fact that on Reddit, all of these people who don't know him are responding saying, do you know that under like <laughs> under the UN, you can qualify for refugee status? Like here's who you can contact. This person saying, I run a hotel in Brighton in England. If you can get here, I will give you a job. Like that kind of like human connection and conversation off of somebody being dangerously personal, 
I think is amazing. And we hear about those stories, I think, as internal Redditors every day, but we may hear about one and there could be a thousand. Okay, I just got goosebumps. Yeah, it's me. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, and there's also like goofy things of like, of, of, of give a give a pizza. <laughs> People will do a pizza exchange where literally they'll just be like, "Hey, I, this is what I want. I need a pizza. I'm having a rough day." Random stranger on the internet will send them a pizza. You know, so there's a lot of goofy stuff like that. Alexis, one of our co-founders, did a post after Trump's immigration order talking about his own immigrant story um, and the fact that his family is of German and Armenian heritage and invited other Redditors to sort of share share their stories of being an immigrant. Because again, just to using the platform to kind of think about, you have all these people, they're pseudo-anonymous, we don't really know who they are or what they look like, but just to have people say kind of how does the Trump, you know, thinking about how the Trump immigration order can impact them. And it's amazing. You had stories from people all over the world saying, you know, I came to the U.S. from this country. This is my story. You know, even internally, we had conversations about this to have people be able to share, you know, yeah, my family came from this. This is why these issues are important to me, um, regardless of what your political stance is, just to, again, remind people that this is not just like an other sort of concept, that this is could be happening to the person sitting next to you, the person across the hall from you in your apartment building, that like, this is something real that actually impacts real people. This idea, you've referenced the use of the word platform. Yeah. Which is a word that I have fallen in love with. <laughs> I love this notion. Uh, someone was using the word platform in, about another platform recently. And this is a platform. This is a, a stage. This yeah. is a mic. This is an opportunity. So this is a moment. Given that that's the case, this 20 minutes or so is a platform. Take this platform for a minute and think about what you would tell your your audience of students who would be listening to you. Think of yourself entering law school. What advice would you give yourself when you entered law school, Lolo's, uh, just a few years ago? You know, it's funny. I think I would probably just say, like, just, like, fucking have fun. Like, there's no, it's three years. And at that point in time in your life, it does feel like it's a long three years before you get to really start your career. It's just have fun, you know. Like, I think the best part of law school was the people in my section. I mean, I loved section three in my class. And the people that we met that I met around, you know, one of my classmates is Theonae, who was a Supreme Court clerk for Sandra Day O'Connor and a partner at Gibson Dunn. And Theonae and I met because we were both Georgetown and we had a good laugh about the Georgetown Law School career counselor who told us both not to go to law school. <laughs> mm-hmm. And those kinds of relationships, like I could call Theonae today and like have a conversation with her. So that, it's amazing to be surrounded by that group of people at that point in time in your life, regardless of what got you there how old you are, um, or what perspective you have. And I think to be to be in that environment and to just really enjoy it, and that means like, you know, it does mean like making, you know, becoming friends with your classmates. It means trying things that are outside your real house, not always trying to make the perfect choice for your career, but just getting outside your own box and doing something different, I think is just, it's amazing. 
I think that everyone should do it. Just don't be don't be scared to like screw it up. You can't ever screw it up. Make yeah. friends and let yourself screw up. Yeah. That seems like good advice for life. <laughs> It's much easier in law school. Know to self, make friends and don't be afraid to screw it up. Yeah. What do you think your younger self would say if she saw you now? How the hell did you get there? (laughs) You made friends and you weren't afraid to screw it up. Yeah, I wasn't afraid to screw it up. And I think, I guess the other thing I would say is, it's funny now when you're a manager thinking about this, but getting people to think about like, what is it that you want to learn and learn that? Like, don't worry about if your friends are in the class or sort of like who's doing it, what it looks like, just if you want to learn something, go learn it and figure out like, and then your path moves, right? So for me, like I, you know, I loved tech and I, so I did leave New York and I moved to San Francisco. I had no idea that I was going to end up at Google and work on crazy, crazy products where I launched Google Fiber. And at the last, you know, at the 11th hour, I was in charge of, before I left, I was in charge of Google Play, where I was traveling globally and meeting with regulators in foreign countries um, to talk about Google and their products and things of that nature. I could have never predicted that that's where I would be, especially my first year of law school. But again, I think in the concept of like life, somebody in a panel the other day here said, you know, life is not a ladder, it's a jungle gym. So, you know, keeping that in mind that there isn't, you don't always have to be on the path. It just, you know, and that's why I say, like, just have fun and and figure out when you want to learn and keep moving forward. Because I think life is a jungle gym. And, you know, I'm going to go home and embroider this on a pillow. Not that I'm going to embroider <laughs> anything, but, you know, hey, the idea. And then your path moves. Yeah. Because it does seem to move. Yeah. When you least expect it, just put one foot in front of the other. And I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't have predicted it in any, I mean, I literally could not have predicted it in any way. Even at Google, staying at Google, you know, I made a choice at one point. I think you're very blessed when you work at Google to always have the opportunity to go do something different and to move on. And at one point I decided not to leave the company and to stay because I just didn't think I had learned everything I could learn from Google. And then, you know, literally two months later, someone's like, oh, so we're just going to launch Google Fiber. Like you're launching Comcast. So, and I got to do that. I had never worked on those types of products. To me, I was like, okay, I've never worked with the content industry. I want to understand how big media works, you know, working with HBO, working with Showtime, working with all the big networks. And what does that actually mean, especially from a legal perspective and rights and copyright. Like I hadn't spent, I took a copyright class in law school, but had not looked at copyright really up until that time. (laughs) I'd never had to practice it. So you know, I looked at it, you know, that, like, that was amazing. And that experience gave me exposure to being able to say when a role to lead Google Play came up to say, okay, well, she has content experience. She has this experience. I had had some EU global experience, but not Korea, not Asia, Brazil, um, and that sort of stuff that enabled people to say, okay, like, she has, like, the basic skills to be able to do this role. You just kind of show up and kick ass, don't you? I mean, I just try, I just keep, I just learn. No, I don't always kick ass. I definitely make mistakes. But I think it's about, I think it's just about like nobody, I I think what's most frustrating to me about younger people is that wanting a plan to be set out for them and wanting like the picture to be painted. And I think fundamentally you have to paint your own picture and it's not paint by numbers. Like somebody gives you some paint and a piece of paper and you just have to make it up as you go along. So I think that's the part that I think for for kids in particular, just needing, just not always focusing on. I mean, the number of times I've talked to law school students where they say, how do I get to work in-house? Like, well, why don't you start by working after law school, right? Because quite frankly, you don't always have the skills that needed to be in-house. Like, you need to learn skills. You need to learn the skills of like, 
you can't run until you learn how to walk. And so part of your job needs to be focusing on how do I learn the base skills in order to get to the next level. Just do something. Yeah. Missy, thank you for doing this. Of course. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun to talk to you. (laughs) It always is, but you know. Hopefully it's entertaining for the students. This is awesome. Even if it looks like you're just talking to me, I have a feeling you're going to, you know, influence more than just me. Okay. Well, I hope so. But, you know, as it happened, you happened to be influencing me too. So (laughs) thank you for that. Of course. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash womensleadership. leadership.